Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Joe Mercadante from the NYU Wasserman Center. And today we are joined by Candace Lola. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be doing this interview. Can you begin by telling us what you studied at NYU and what you've been doing since you graduated? Yeah, I'd love to. I studied with the uh, Center for Experimental Humanities, which goes by XE, shortened to XE. It's an interdisciplinary program that encourages its students to use different disciplines in humanities to sort of explore and critically analyze different subjects. Since uh, graduating, I've been working as a freelance writer, mainly in culture and politics. I do also do some cultural reviews, books and and series and stuff like that. But I find that uh, my work in sociopolitical commentary does a lot better. So that's becoming more of what I do. So I wanted to dig into your experience with freelance writing a little bit more. How did you get your first few writing jobs? I started with an internship at a really small publication called Honeysuckle Magazine. They do fringe social commentary, a lot of interviews of, well, sort of people with fringe interests, sex work, cannabis, things like that. Because I was sort of newer and I was an intern, I sort of uh, just kind of had to take whatever assignments were given to me. And that helped me build a really diverse portfolio. And then as as I became more experienced and more comfortable with the team, I started pitching more ideas, sort of uh, realizing what I was what I was stronger in. Uh, But because I was able to build a diverse portfolio from the assignments that I was getting, Uh, I was able to approach other publications and like have clips and samples that I could send to them that I know that I knew were strong, that I knew an editor had looked over, that I knew had been published. I was able to send them links. And I also just started looking for people that were looking for pitches. Uh, I would utilize Twitter a lot. That's when I realized that Twitter was Twitter is just a really great resource for writers, no matter what kind of writer you are. I would literally I still do literally will go to Twitter and just type in call for pitches and see what editors come up. And if it's something, if I have work in that area or a sample that I think would fit or a pitch that I've been thinking about, um, then I'll approach them. But the biggest resource for me has been friends in the industry. I have, I have one friend who is a freelance writer who has been a freelance writer for several years. She's been instrumental in helping me get work and teaching me how to approach certain editors because Of course, they're looking for a certain voice and you often have to sort of fit that voice. I guess having those friends in the in the in the industry or making friends and getting those friends in the industry and sort of trying to satisfy my own hunger by searching down opportunities has been majorly helpful. So we know advocating for yourself can be difficult really for anyone. But can you talk to us a little bit about how you advocated for yourself to be paid for the work you were doing? (laughs) That was a party. Uh... Um, so I had been working at the publication for uh, a couple, several months, 
And I was pretty diligent. I was showing up to weekly pitch meetings and I'd had a couple of stories that had done really well. And I think that's what gave me the confidence. Um, and I also had a really good a really good relationship with the head editor, which definitely helped because I was able to be very, very straight with her. And I was like, I really, really like writing for the publication. I, I really, I still do. I still will send them freelance work sometimes because I love what they write and what they stand for and what they publish. But I told her that I couldn't afford to work for free anymore. <laughs> and that was just it. Um, she believed that I was valuable enough to the magazine to work with me. So going off of that, obviously there had been a big push for transparency about pay rates in the publishing industry um, and just in general. So what do you try to make sure that you're being paid fairly for your work? That is really tough. (laughs) That is really, really tough. Because you're working with multiple publications a lot of the time and don't usually know all the writers that they're staffing and stuff, it can be rough. Again, it goes back to sort of having friends that are also doing freelance writing. I have a friend who will send me pitches that she thinks that I will be interested in and then she'll tell me, oh, I have a friend that writes for them. She makes this much, so don't accept a pay rate lower than this. It's been, it's been oh my goodness, it's been incredibly helpful. We have had interviews with the same magazines where she will tell them like, this is not a pro rate for the work that you're asking for. She told me about the interview. At the time, I couldn't turn down any paid work. But because she'd already had that interaction with them, when I had the interview, I was able to advocate for myself because she had put the bug in their ear. I won't usually accept a rate unless I really like the work I'm going to be writing and it matches with the pace. So I have publications that pay me less but uh, I love what I write for them. Writing for them doesn't feel like a lot of work. And then I have other publications where they sort of want lighter things, lifestyle things. I'm not really that great with, with lifestyle and listicles and things like that. And so I won't accept a really low rate for work like that. And I also try to make sure that I don't accept rates lower than what I've already. I'm, tr- I'm trying to go in, in one direction. That's great. That's great that you know your worth. You know what you can do, what you want. I think I think that's part of the process. Um, which is awesome to hear. Yeah, you have to have a lot of confidence as a freelancer. You really have to have a lot of confidence. You have to, in the emails, you know, know the lingo and you have to just, you have to sort of convince the editor, you need me to write this piece. Your readers want to read me. <laughs> I have the proof. Here's the, here are the receipts. You really have to go in there knowing what you're worth. You really, really do. So I wanted to go back to social media because I know you mentioned in the beginning your work on social and how active you've been. Can you talk about how writers are expected to do a lot of their own publicity to make a name for themselves on social media and how you personally have used social media as a tool specifically in your career? Yes. So I've seen other writers wield social media a lot better than I have, (laughs) where they will write out Twitter threads. Like I said, Twitter's a great resource for writers. They'll write out Twitter threads that will go viral. They're, they're, I mean, and I used to think that you would just kind of write these threads out and just, you know, as they come, but people will edit and sit and make sure that they have the most impact. I don't have the energy for that, but that's something, if you do, that's something that's really helpful. <laughs> I try to be really organic with my social media, especially on Instagram, because I'm not ext- I'm not as visual as someone that would be more successful at at Instagram, but I will post articles that I write and it makes it so that I don't have to work super hard at curating like a, like a presence that isn't authentic to me. 
so I, I've been uh, visibly writing, writing and putting it on social media for like the past six, seven years. And what's been most interesting is that people that I grew up with, people who knew me when I was a kid, have been coming to me with their individual projects. Like, oh, I'm writing a book I want to self-publish, but I would like you to edit or... I'm proud of you. I knew when you I knew you when you were a little girl. Can I know someone who is looking for someone to do this? So that's been a big way that I've been cultivating my network that, you know, that I didn't even I didn't even expect. I know you spent a few years in the professional world before you returned to school to get your degree in experimental humanities at NYU. What were you doing in those years after you finished your undergrad degree and what motivated you to return to school? My undergraduate degree is in psychology with my concentration in counseling. So that's the field I was working in. And then I started working in applied behavior analysis or ABA. And at least from what I'd read about it before I started studying it, you know, when you're 17, 18, deciding a major and you're like, I want to help people. Counseling seems like the answer. (laughs) I'm realizing now that I had a really simplistic understanding of what that meant to help people. Because once I got into the field and started running up against some of the bureaucracy and some of the, some of my issues, I realized it was a really bad fit for me. It was a really, really bad fit for me. I love the actual work of counseling. I really loved working with clients and, and, and seeing them improve and learning from them. But it felt like there were certain things I couldn't be honest with them about some of the harder topics that we're finally talking about right now, like ableism and racism and classism and things like that, I would have to make them okay <laughs> with these systems that I know were damaging. <laughs> and it really felt like I couldn't tell the truth, which is definitely not true of every practitioner, but was very true for me. It was getting really bad. I was getting really burnt out. And I noticed that I would sort of run to writing each time. Hence started the sort of 18 month, should I, should I, should I change career? Should I not? It was crazy. It was, it was crazy. Understanding yourself and understanding to know when to change and switch gears is so important. To say like, this isn't working for me. I need to change things up is hard and is a big risk for people. How did you go about taking that next step to make things work when it wasn't working for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely took a long time. Even when I got into NYU, I took a year to raise more money, just work and raise more money. So it still took a lot of time. And I have, again, a network of people that helped me with the move. So it wasn't just me on my own confidence. I I definitely want to make that clear that I had a lot. I had a lot of help, (laughs) a lot of help moving. In, 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 in this tr- in making this transition, for sure. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Miriam Miller. When someone who is an early career professional is trying to put together a resume and doesn't have a lot of professional experience, I often find that it can be a little bit anxiety producing for a lot of people. And I think there are some really great ways to deal with that. So in terms of formatting, there are definitely some specific formats that we provide at Wasserman to help people think about how to really fill up the page effectively if you're someone who doesn't have quite as much experience. Additionally, there's a lot of things that you can choose to include on a resume in terms of content that don't involve work experience specifically. So for example, some people will choose to include relevant coursework that they have. 
Some people also choose to include academic or personal projects. So think a little bit about what types of things you've done in your courses. Has there been a paper that you've worked on or a project that's been required that you might be able to include that would demonstrate how you've worked effectively with a team or done research or presented findings about things? You can also choose to include any kind of student leadership that you might have done or activity on campus or off campus. So that's something that is certainly very valuable, as is volunteer work. So do not discount any work just because it might have been unpaid work that you've done. And then lastly, consider adding something like an interest section. An interest section should definitely not be very long, but if you're looking to add a couple of lines, an interest section is definitely one other way to do that. So collectively between all of these different areas, as well as education and skills and contact information, most people can really fill out a, a pretty comprehensive resume that speaks to their professional skills, even if they don't necessarily have a lot of direct professional experience. So I encourage everyone to really keep an open mind and broaden their definition of what they think professional experience looks like beyond just something that might be paid work experience for an employer. And now, back to the episode. It wasn't too long after you earned your master's degree that the Black Lives Matter movement had another surge of public support following the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. As a black woman and a person who was motivated to pursue a career in writing after Michael Brown's death, how have the events of the last year impacted your writing? It's changed everything. It really, really has. Social commentary is trending now towards more brutal confrontation of oppressive systems. Whereas before, my more feel-good pieces did a lot better and my bolder pieces got a lot of hate. And now my bolder pieces are what people are, are looking for. The recent visibility of Black Lives Matter and discussions around that have sort of given me permission, I guess, to write more boldly. And I've also noticed, this is, and I've also noticed, this might be a little bit controversial, but I've also noticed that publications are more open to having me on staff just for the optics, which is something that I'm trying to take advantage of, you know? Earlier, earlier last year, so we're talking like spring last year, maybe March, it was, I was getting pretty much all form rejections. (laughs) Even the reason why I connected with, with my freelance friend was because I was having trouble covering bills. (laughs) And I have noticed that with calls for more diversity and more inclusivity, some of those publications that rejected me have reached back out. Just been, it's just, people have just been more receptive to what I talk about and me and me and as my in my identity, which is something that's completely new to me. <laughs> I'm writing work that is real, that is authentic and tells my truth at least. I know I don't have the authority on what is true, but my truth, I try to be honest about. And so even if they are just kind of using me, my truth is out there and that could possibly help push us forward. I want to dig into this a little bit more. What resources have you turned to during this time for support and solidarity? While I'm really excited about the visibility of Black Lives Matter, a lot of the gestures are still really empty and performative, which is almost more frustrating than being ignored, (laughs) especially when you see sort of the same, you see the same sort of oppressive systems been perpetuated through this grassroots movement. But my own my own network of friends and, and family, they allow me to escape, they validate me and my frustration, they read my work for me. 
and tell me if I'm being too biased or if I need more, more, um, more sources. I mean, it's been everything. It's been everything. It seems like a key theme that I'm learning and picking up from you is that having a strong group around you is key to success and essential. It really, it really, really is. Build a team, build a team, build a team of people that support you. What are some changes that you hope to see in the industry in the future? Well, I think that there just needs to be, I think the industry just needs to make room. There needs to be more diversity in people telling their own stories, period. Marginalized people don't need white people to translate their stories for them. We're good. <laughs> we, have, we have the language. I just think, you know, the industry just kind of needs to let us work. I'm hoping that in the future, and I'm seeing things trending towards this, but I'm hoping that I see bolder work and more accountability and more respect for differences and more working together without co-opting and the silencing that we're seeing a lot of now. I'm hoping to see different communities build outlets in this industry and, and, and experience success, you know, and we learn more about the nuance of being of, of a person different from you. More of that. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think storytelling and learning from other people's stories is so important. And I love that you're bringing it up because I think we need more voices at the table. We need more voices represented. Right. And we can find so many similarities and, and, and find things that we that are similar in our communities, that we, that we treat differently. I think it's essential to forward creativity that we hear other people. If someone is looking to pursue a career as a freelance writer, what is some advice that you would give them if they were listening today? Oh, <laughs> Have a second source of income. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I was not prepared. Even though my class was 2020, I finished in 2019. And I was supposed to have a therapy job and do freelance writing. But the therapy job fell through when lockdown happened. Thankfully, again, I had people that were able to support me when I realized my folly and now I'm able, now I do have a second source of income, but freelance writing can be incredibly inconsistent, even if you're working consistently. People won't pay you on time. People will want to renegotiate rates in the middle of a project. It can be really frustrating, especially if it's your only source of income. If I didn't have support and another source of income in place, uh, I'm not sure what I would do. So do not quit your day job to be a freelance writer. Do not, and, and, you know, and, until you become Roxanne Gay and you can do whatever you want <laughs> and people are hunting you down, absolutely, number one piece of advice, make sure you have another source of income. Yeah, I think that reality check is so important. Even like you said, even if you're writing consistently, the pay may be inconsistent. With freelancing, a lot of, it, a lot of uh, what happens is out of your hands. You can have a perfect product. You can pitch beautifully. You can learn the editor that you're pitching to inside and out, and they can just reject your work. Or you can write the work, and they could not pay you on time. And what are you going to do? <laughs> so what's next for you in your career? What are you thinking about for the future? Oh, man. Okay. I would love to be a staff writer. I would love to be a staff writer. Just because the one thing about freelance writing is because I'm, getting, I'm having to sort of lightly get to know everyone. I don't get to sort of focus down on one publication, one group of, one team of editors. I would like to be an editor in politics and culture, you know, being able to work with other writers who are, who are just coming to the field, 
is a dream of mine, helping them find their voices. I also do fiction writing. I have a horror, I love horror stories. I write horror stories. I have a short horror story collection that is gaining a little bit of interest. I'm hoping that, um, <laughs> I'm hoping that, that, I, can, that I can get that published and eat off that for the rest of my life and like live in a treehouse. That would be ideal, but <laughs> that'd be really fun. It'd be really fun. But uh, just, just more career writing stuff. I really want to be able to, to eat and live without a lot of stress. Staff writing seems to be the best way to do that. And horror writing is just something I just love. I just love to do. On that note, I want to say it's been phenomenal learning about you, phenomenal hearing about your story, your incredible journey, and the fact that you're able to juggle so much all at once. So thank you. This has been really, really great. Thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun. Just during this whole process, I've had a lot of fun talking to you guys and getting to know your team. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Joe Mercadante with episode guest, Candace Lola. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Mia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Dana Rosa, Haley Garofalo, Diana Mendez, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.